word tonight. Heavenly Father, we're grateful that your word can be a lamp to our feet, is a lamp to our feet, and a light to our path. May he who has inspired it, your Holy Spirit, be at work in us tonight again. Uh, we're grateful that we can be in fellowship with him and you and the Son, the one only God. And may that call to wholehearted devotion uh, resonate in our hearts because your Spirit has taken your word and worked it in us so that all the more, Father, in every day, as we seek to live gratefully before you, you would show our devotion to the one God who saves us in Jesus Christ. May you hear us in Jesus' name. Amen. We are taking up Psalm 86 tonight as our portion of God's Word to shed light on our confession, which we find in Lord's Day uh, 34, and we'll be taking a look at that in uh, just a moment, in Lord's Day 34, and particularly as we see that uh, Lord's Day 34 starts with the Ten Commandments, we can get over to uh, question 93 in a moment, and we'll look at that question as well as 94 and 95. Five, after we read from Psalm 86. And here's what God's Word says to us there. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. Verse 8, there is none like you among the gods, O Lord nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I, will give, I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart. And I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life. And they do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. Passage that speaks to us about the singularity of the only God that there is. You alone are God, we find in Psalm 86. We think about... Uh, the Ten Commandments is our rule for gratitude, where we uh, turn to question 93 after having seen that the Ten Commandments are, are put before us in question 92. And we have this question that gets asked on page 48. 
How are these commandments divided into two tables? The first has four commandments teaching us what our relation to God should be. The second has six commandments teaching us what we owe our neighbor. Question 94 asks, what does the Lord require in the first commandment? The answer is that I, not wanting to endanger my very salvation, avoid and shun all idolatry, magic, superstitious rites, prayer to saints or to other creatures, that I sincerely acknowledge the only true God, trust Him alone, look to Him for every good thing, humbly and patiently, love Him, fear Him, honor Him with all my heart. In short, they give up anything rather than go against his will in any way. Question 95 asks, what is idolatry? The answer is, idolatry is having or inventing something in which one trusts in place of or alongside of the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. May the Lord's blessing truly be upon us as we receive his word tonight. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, when our children hear stories from the Bible and events from the Bible that speak to them about idols that the nations have made or that even Israel made in the Old Testament, it has to be a little bit strange to our boys and girls to hear about those things because in where we live and where they are, uh, worshiping idols in that way is is simply not something that we feel a whole lot of and that we experience, or that is maybe their major temptation. But of course, that doesn't mean that there are no idols around. When the Lord tells us that we are to have no other gods before him, he realizes that even in our own day and age, that we can have our idols. They're just not the kind that are made out of rock or stone that way. Our passage is in harmony with the fifth first commandment as we can see, especially when we get into that middle portion of Psalm 86 where it says, You alone are God, you're forgiving and you're good. And that's why it says too that all the nations are to rally and worship before this God and why the psalmist seeks to give his wholehearted devotion to this God, which is what the catechism in light of God's word tells us to do as well when it says that I give up anything rather than to go against his will and that I love him, fear him, and honor him with all my heart. This evening we want to reflect on that devotion, the one true God as to what we are to be ignoring and what it is in light of God's grace that we ought to be doing. So first of all, considering what we are to be ignoring, which is kind of the negative side of things, while the second point is kind of the positive side of things, which we see oftentimes as we work our way through the Ten Commandments. When we hear the first commandment, we may come away with the idea that there are more than one God. That what God wants from us simply is that he gets exclusive rights to us. It's like having somebody who happens to be, uh, let's say, from a trucking firm, and then that trucking firm is is uh, getting a contract with somebody to ship things out. Well, they could have picked another trucking firm, 
but they picked this trucking firm, or uh, they could have gotten this carpenter to do this work for this house or for this commercial project. And it's not the only one there is, but you sign on the dotted line, you say, this is the people that I'm going to work with. These are, they have exclusive rights. And some might think, well, that's kind of how God is. He's just one God of many, and uh, he's just getting exclusive rights, and he's calling us to that. But there's other people, there's other persons, there's other gods that could be followed. But of course, when we read in Scripture, we recognize that the idols or the gods that are imagined by the nations of the world are just that. They, they're things that they've imagined. They're of their own imagery. Uh, they're made up to be like God, alongside of God equal to God, or maybe even better than the God of the Scriptures. It wouldn't have been uncommon, of course, in those Old Testament days. And of course, that's what Israel was uh, having challenges with themselves, right? Is that to just stay with the one God. No, it was this temptation that was there to say, no, you know what we're going to do? We're just going to have as many gods as we can because the more the merrier. Uh, it, it's like, again, you know, where you'd say, uh, well, if a couple of pills is going to do me fine, then why don't I just take half the bottle? No, don't do that, of course. But it's almost of that same mentality. Uh, more reasonably to say, well, if I've got ten soldiers protecting me, then, then why don't I get a hundred? Because that's even more protection. Strength in numbers, after all. The reason that we want to look to other gods, of course, is because often it's it seemed like an insurance policy to us. It's like having uh, uh, having that extra kick that you need. Because maybe God won't be there for you. And so maybe you'll need something else on which to lean. You know, it's kind of like it's this God plus kind of thing. We've talked about that in times past, I'm sure, where, you know, you go to the, the gas station and and you take the, the uh, nozzle out, and you're looking at what choice you have to make. And and uh, by the way, those things can be much more pragmatic, uh, problematic these days, it seems, but because you have so many choices. But you've got unleaded, and then you've got unleaded plus. Well, that must be the better. That's better for my vehicle. Not just mere unleaded, but I'm going to have unleaded plus now. Uh, that's got to be better for me. Well, that's how people can act with their gods and with God. God's okay, but I, I want God plus. I want God this way or that way uh, with additions, with supplements, because God just won't be enough for me. He may be good for eternity, uh, but he's not good for time. He may be good for Sunday, where we get this uh, sacredness that abounds within our, our lives, but you know, when we're going through life, then we need to be practical after all. He can be good when things go well, but not when the news turns bad for us. Well, that, that can't be the God on whom I'm going to depend at that point. It's good to hear about his word on Sunday, or, or it makes for a good devotional, but, you know, it, he isn't really that much of a help when I'm having problems. Then I've got to rely on somebody else. So we look elsewhere for help to secure our lives because like the people of Bible times, we come to believe that we need other gods before us. 
And we can come up with all kinds of thoughts. Simply because in our sin, we end up swapping, like the Bible says, the Creator with the creature. And there are many things that we might seek to make gods to cover the needs to, uh, and aspects of life and to bring us to peace. And the foolishness of sin is that while there are no other gods but God, we invent. And, and we turn to them to suit our purposes. Living in this dream world where we invent our own kind of fairy tale type gods to, to make our dreams come true. And even atheists do that. You know, you, you probably know somebody who would say to you too that I don't believe, you know, I don't believe in any god at all. Atheists do. You know, it's partly why the Bible will say in a couple of different places, right, that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Even atheists have their gods, or at least one. We can be polytheists, and no different from the ancient world or the Greek world. Or, or we can be atheists who claim to have no God, but we've got one. We've got one at least, namely ourselves, because we trust our own word that there is no God. And so we've made ourselves the standard where we come, we're here today and we're gone tomorrow. And, and in the process of saying there are no gods and yet making ourselves the standard by which we live, we've made ourselves a God and we've contradicted ourselves. So the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Most of us have the temptation of, of polytheism, though, where in our sin we, we make many things our gods, to serve our purposes. To serve our purposes, which is another oddity, really, when you think about it, because we're here to serve our God, not the gods to serve us. Unlike the true God, we make them, not the other way around. And they're made to serve us, and not the other way around. Our gods may not, may not be wood, stone like of old, but we can have them. And the Catechism realizes that idolatry doesn't mean that you need a rock for an idol. It can be anything that we put before God's will, or anything that we trust alongside of or above God. The sky is almost the limit, really, when you think about that, to what could become idolatrous to us. Scripture tells us that greed is a form of idolatry. We sang about that a moment ago. We can see that if our ultimate is wealth, our ultimate is our wealth, and if our security is in the dollar, we, we fail to keep money and things in the proper place. It's not hard for us to take that approach, especially when we're struggling to make ends meet, although it can be the other side as well, right? We know that from the Proverbs, that you know, whether we're rich or poor, if we're rich, we might... Forget God, say, who is he? And, and if we're poor, we might seek to steal and dishonor his name. But even the Heavenly Father knows you know, what we need in the things of the world. And he doesn't say those things aren't important, but they're just not as important as he is. But when our longing and our trust and priorities start to show, the greed has taken the place of the Lord, and that ends up becoming an idolatrous act. Not that money is the root of all evil, but the love of money is. 
And that's because it can easily take the place of the devoted love we're to have for our Lord. So many things can become idolatrous. Wanting our way above the Lord's way. Another way of living the idolatrous life. You know, maybe you're that way in your family. You know, where life is not good in your sight. <laughs> if you're not getting your way. You know, and you show it. You know, and you stomp your feet, or you fold your arms, or you go off in a huff because you didn't get what you want. Because that's the most important thing to you. That you get your way. You're really not acting much differently than the atheist who says, there's no God. Because it's your way. It's your perspective. It's your desires that come first. And you're always right and true. Anything can get in the way of the way of the Lord and His Word. Doesn't have to be things that we would consider inherently bad either. Family, friends, or work can get in the way. We have to be careful about those kind of idolatrous pursuits where work becomes too important. And the marriages that the Lord has called us to keep faithful do not become very important. And then the cheapness of our faith is displayed for what it is. Family loyalty takes precedence over fidelity in Christ. I mean, that happens too. Again, the cheapness of our faith is displayed for what it is. Even churches followed with blind loyalty. Well, why do I go wherever I go? Because that's where I always went, and that's where my parents went, and that's where my grandparents went, and that's where my friends have gone. And I just believe what the church believes. Or, and I don't always know what the church believes, that doesn't matter. What matters is that uh, I'm following blindly. And I'm really becoming what we could say with a fancy word, we become ecclesiology. I can't even say it right now, but it's ecclesiolatry. That's what it is. Right? It's a combination of taking the church and taking idolatry and mixing them together and saying, what I'm really devoted to is, is my church. Right or wrong, but I'm devoted to my church. And that can get in the way of God as well. Even our eating and drinking can be like that. Some people live to eat rather than eat to live for the Lord. Our friends can mean more to us or being popular or, or want to be wanted by others can, can mean more to us than the fellowship of believers or the worship of Christ. You know, and we can put our pursuits of entertainment before our devotion to the Lord. It's more important that we go have fun somewhere uh, than that we come to worship the Lord. Uh, because we really don't believe that Psalm, like Psalm 84 would say, better day in his courts than a thousand elsewhere. That's just lip service. There are dangerous things like these that we're to ignore and shun like, I almost wanted to say the plague, but you could almost say like COVID-19, I suppose, in our day and age, right? Where we're all supposed to be six feet apart and people don't want to get too close, right? Of course, that would have been the way in the days of the Black Plague, I suppose, as well. You avoid it like the plague. Well, that plague, well, that's what we should be staying away from, these idolatrous 
action. Because they're destructive. That's the mentality that we're to be taking regarding idolatry. We make the confession that we don't want to endanger our very salvation. Now, that's quite a statement for a Reformed person and for a Reformed confession who believes in the perseverance of the saints, but, but then that's the approach that the saints take to idolatry. They know that they're playing with fire when they're too close to the realm of idolatry. They hate it, and they want to steer clear from it. And that's certainly what we want to pray may be our practice and desire, because so many things, that's, the, that's part of the problem, isn't it? You know, when you swap the creator with the creature, well, just start thinking about all the creaturely things there are. There's so many things that can come in the place of the Lord's trust and and his will and his word. And, and the last thing that we should want to do is those who have known that salvation that only the Lord could give and promises. And the last thing that we should want to do when we consider of the precious direction that God gives to us alone is to put anything before him. <coughs> as if that's going to help us and that's going to fill the need that God cannot do. God, pardon us when we do that. God, help us for the sake of Christ to avoid idolatry. Recall to avoid magic and superstitious practices and praying to saints too. That's part of what this commandment's all about, where we presume that we, by our words, and our deeds it can manipulate what some would call the cosmic forces. Uh, we can somehow be in charge. We're, our word is seen as powerful. On par with the word of the Creator, who alone can speak and have things come to be. Superstitious acts are not reserved for the ancient days either, though. Because we know that, uh, well, it was true that the Israelites would you know, think the ark could magically give them victory in battle or that the bronze snake uh, was worthy of honor and, and, and adoration. In our days, we hear somebody say, well, step on a crack and break your mother's back. Or you, you, you might be watching a, a baseball game and you see somebody going across the foul lines. They don't dare want to touch the line as they cross the line. Because for some reason, they think that's bad luck. Or they're going to wear the same shirt for days on end. As long as they keep winning. Or people will say, well, if a black cat crosses your path, that's a bad thing. And don't be in a building that has a 13th floor. And if you're going to build something like that, don't build a 13th floor. Well, either you got pretty short buildings, I guess, that you're building or... If you're going to build and you say, well, that's, we're not going to have a 13th floor. You can't avoid that. You might call it the 14th, but it's still the 13th. But some places have done that sort of thing as well. I had it one time when I was in a, a nursing home. I remember it was in South Holland, Illinois. And there were people, there was a woman there and she had her rosary beads. And she came up to me and she said, I, she figured that I was a minister or a priest or something. And uh, she says, can you uh, 
help me out. Can you bless my rosary beads? Because she said the beads had run out of power, kind of like a cell phone, I guess. And I refused to do that, but I said, I'll pray for you, and I'll pray that you'll know the blessing of God through faith in the Lord. But she had this thought that if she just worked her way through the beads, that that was going to bring about what she needed. There are those who believe that water baptism will make them justified, or that the partaking of the Mass will get them closer to her right relationship with God. There are people who will pray to patron saints who are just manifold. It's amazing how many there are. Because they believe that because of the connection they have with those people, they'll gain an answer to their prayer and their needs because the Lord and His Christ aren't enough. And in fact, the, the Lord and His Christ are just too austere. They're just too powerful. They're I can't draw near to him. They don't believe that in Jesus' name, like the psalmist says, in the day of trouble, I'll call on you and you'll answer me. Magic, superstitions, prayers to saints have this in common. The notion that if the right thing is done and or said, then we can control God or manipulate him to meet our needs and our wants. It's a temptation. It's certainly a temptation in the church uh, to think that if we just do the right thing, package things just right, we'll have people come in droves or what have you. You know, which we, we, we want to manipulate. We know it better than God. Instead of taking joy and, and comforting God's control in, in our times of need and crisis and trouble, we want to be at the control. Which is, which is fantasy. You know, where we say, I want to be able to control everything. Well, I'm a control freak. Well, stop being a control freak. You're not in control. You're creating yourself, at best, a false sense of security. We have to take comfort where it can be found. It's in the only true God. For the sake of Christ, watches over us in such a way that not even a hair can fall from our head apart from his will. That's where the control belongs. That's where it is. And that's where our consolation is. So we need to avoid idolatry like the plague. And the more that we do that, the more we show forth our devotion and our trust and our obedience to the one true God in Jesus Christ. It'll also show in what we do positively, of course, too. The psalmist speaks about that devotion to God. That wholehearted devotion. It reminds us of the devotion of the son to his father. Uh, he, uh, he mentions that, uh, especially in, in verse 12, where it says, I give you thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart. There's this devotion which reminds us of Christ who had shown his devotion in the way of the first commandment like, uh, like he did all the way to the cross. He was obedient unto death. In light of that salvation, we're to reflect Christ's devotion. It's going to be pale compared to his, but we and all the nations of the world are called to it. We see that in this psalm. All the nations 
all the nations will come to worship you because there is none among the gods like you, O Lord. It's easily believed that any god will do, you know, as long as we're religious. Many there are who believe there's a god, but what that god is can have different forms. And in our tolerant culture, we're called to live with acceptance to that thought. But our passage says that all the nations are supposed to give homage to the one true God. It's why the gospel is meant to go out into all the world. Because there's but one God for all the world. There's one salvation for all the world. There's one Lord for all the world. And it's because there is this one God that the psalmist would speak in, in other exclusive terms like he does. Like cry all day long to you. Not to anybody else. I have this undivided heart. I come to you with all my heart. I thank you with all my heart. And that makes sense that there's only one God. As the only God, he, he needs to be seen as our ultimate source. The psalmist sees it so. We speak about how that seeking of God solely needs to be done humbly and patiently. We need to be humble as those who realize that while we pray for things, it's always to be with God's kingdom and will and name, as we hear so often in this passage, in mind. He comes first, not we. Now, who are we to come demanding our way? Because that, again, is idolatry. We, we are to seek him patiently as those believe, who believe that God's time is best. And we may not think so. And we might dare to dispute that in idolatry, that we know it better than he does, but then God has a better grasp on timing and the big picture than we do. We have to believe that God will answer us in the way that's best for us, not in the way that we think is best for us. And that's not always easy. We may have to wait. Or we may not get what we think we should when we think we should. But we need to believe that for the sake of the Lord Jesus, that He'll give us all things that are necessary in accordance with His ways and will. He'll be our sufficiency. He is good. And we need no other God besides us. So we're to love Him in obedience and in adoration as He loved us. Help us to devote ourselves to You with an undivided heart because of Your love, says the psalm. It's a love that reflects the love of God for us, that sacrifices because we are wanting more for His will to be done in our lives and less and less off. We're to, we're, we're to fear Him, respecting His holiness, uh, placing priority with our fear of God over the fear that we have with men, be they heavy-handed persecutors of the faith like the psalmist saw, or those who are supposedly our friends but want us to do things that we shouldn't do. As those who fear God in Christ, we take neither His salvation or His judgment lightly because we know the cost of salvation and we know the dread of everlasting judgment. We're to honor Him in worship, in prayer, and in life. 
such as the balanced life to live. Our, our worship becomes phony when prayer and living doesn't connect with it. Our prayers are hindered by lives that ignore God's will and His call to worship. A life devoted to Christ is elusive if prayer is not seen as a means by which we can live the thankful life and where the worship of the Savior is ignored. In a world that wants to devote itself to all kinds of things, but thinks that its gods can be many or none, we've got a calling when we've known God's sovereign grace in Jesus Christ to live a life of devotion to Him before the world. He's not only the God, He's not only the only God there is. He's the only God that we should want, and He's the only God that we need. Jesus Christ alone, we can say, in the day of trouble, He'll answer. He's forgiving, good, and He alone is God. And what more can you want for your forgiveness then? And what more can you want in troubled times? And why should you want or need any other God? More is less that way. Less is more. God help us all the more then to devote ourselves to Him alone in trust and obedience for the sake of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's take a moment to respond in prayer. Heavenly Father, again tonight we've had a moment to be given to be renewed in the calling You've given to us to devote ourselves to Your Holy Word, to You as the only God. And when we think about and we dwell on the fact that who else is going to forgive us besides you? Who else is going to be there in the times of trouble besides you? Who else is good, altogether true, except you? Then, no wonder we would declare that coming to you in Jesus Christ, the only Savior, that this is the place we ought to be. This is where our praise of you should arise. And all the nations as well, not just for ourselves, not just because we've said to ourselves, well, this is, this is what we've decided is good for us, but you figure out what you want. Now all the nations are called to the worship of your name. Because there's no other God besides you. There's no other Savior besides you. There's no other sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords besides you. And we see that most clearly, Father, in Jesus Christ, who himself knew what it was like to face the adversary, and who found in you also his reason for thanksgiving. We're grateful that he himself was the one who was wholly devoted to you. Nobody kept the first commandment, only Christ. And we're grateful that he has done that for us. And we pray that each one here may take a joy in His devotion for them so that they themselves may be reflections of Christ and be devoted to the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and find that in doing so they'll find rest for their souls. May you accept our prayers, Father. Hear us as we pray in the name of Jesus.